Good morning. My name is Larry. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 6, 1-9. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Linda, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, and 15 through 17. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is God's way of dealing with our sins, not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Everything that is in the world, the craving for whatever the body feels, the craving for whatever the eyes see, and the arrogant pride in one's possessions is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world and its cravings are passing away, but the person who does the will of God remains forever. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Grace. Please stand for the gospel reading. Found in John fifteen eighteen through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they are persecuting me, persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. We are in week two of a series on a little letter toward the end of your Bible called First John, and we're calling the series Beloved um, because by, by long-standing Christian tradition, the letter, First John, was written by the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, and this is a guy who called himself the Beloved, the Beloved Disciple, but he's also the one in this letter, First John, that he calls other believers, he calls these people that he's writing to, he calls them dearly Beloved. And, uh, and so we're going to, as we spend a few weeks going through this letter, we're going we're gonna to hope to see why John sees himself as the beloved 
and why John sees all of us as the beloved. So last week, we, we went through chapter 1, and we made note that this letter was probably a letter that was passed around to different house churches, possibly in the area of Ephesus. And so there were a number of congregations that were under John's influence, and that he's writing to them, and that these letters are now being passed around. We also talked about how there was probably a, a number of different groups within these congregations, some of them being uh, primarily believers who had come from a Jewish background and struggled with believing in Jesus as being the pre-existing co-creator God. And then we talked about how some of these other groups could have come from the Greek background and they had no problem with a, 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 um, a spiritual or divine messenger, but they had trouble believing that he was really flesh and blood, that he's really human. And so John, uh, both in the Gospel of John and in this letter, takes great care to say, no, this Jesus is both the one from the beginning and yet the one that we actually saw and heard and, 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 and touched. And last week, we talked, the, the, the title last week was Coming Into the Light. And we said, okay, listen, when you think about the statement, God is light, and his invitation to come into the light and to live in the light, sometimes that feels like ex- being exposed. When you hear the word, you know, come into the light, or the lights are on, you kind of feel like it's this bad episode of Cops, you know, where it's like, woo, woo, oh no, busted, this holy God, I'm busted. And we said, but what if it's actually more like the situation when one of my children's having a nightmare, and I come in the room, and I turn on the light, and I say, hey, hey, it's okay. You're home. Dad's here. The monsters are gone. Look around. And that actually, that's quite a bit like that situation that John tells in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, where the woman is caught in the act of adultery, and the religious rulers are trying to shine the spotlight and say, busted! And Jesus says, and Jesus, the light of the world says, woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. And so we talked about last week that this idea of coming into the light is not to be shamed, but to recognize that your sins have been washed, that you can come clean because Jesus is the one who makes us clean. Amen? And so here we are now in in, in chapter 2, and The title this week is Do Not Love the World. This could be one of those fire and brimstone sermons, right? But the question that arises after we've finished last week's things is, okay, great, come into the light. Thank God I've been cleansed. Thank God that my sins have been forgiven. Thank God that when I come into the light, I realize how much Christ has done. Thank God for this. But then the the, the practical pastoral question that emerges is, okay, so what do I do with my sin? So what about the fact that I still kind of sometimes, occasionally, I me mean not very often, but I do kind of sometimes sin? Anybody? No? Yeah? Right? Yes? What do we do about this? And one response is to say, well, there's still all these rules, and I've got to follow all these rules, because yes, I may be cleansed, but really redemption is just God giving me a do-over, and so now I've got to do it without messing up, Right? And that deeply embedded in us is this kind of moralism, even though we may not even call it moralism, but it's this voice in our ear that says, you've got to perform, you've got to conform, you've got to do this right, there's this certain way, and you've got to, got to, got to obey. Well, that even rhymes, doesn't it? Dang, it's like channeling a little James Brown there. Okay, anyway. (laughs) 
so, so, so there's this voice in our head that says this, you've, you've got to keep, and Jesus' blood is just sort of a, you know, it's like, yeah, that's great, I forgave you, but now let you better get it right. I mean, I, one time I'll be merciful, but the second time, watch out, right? Is that what happens with our sin that we're still stuck performing? Or there's this other kind of tendency to swing to the other side and say, well, you know what? There are no rules anymore. There is no law. Praise God. It's all just grace, and it really doesn't matter what you do. I mean, you know, you've heard people say, well, you know, the law says do, and the gospel says done, so there's nothing more for you to do. Praise God. I don't even know why we come to church. It's got to be for the bagels and the coffee, because there's surely no new way to actually live. Right? Wait a minute. Something that doesn't seem right. So it's either we go all religion, and by religion I mean the bondage of performing for God, or it's this irreligion of saying, well, there's, there's, there's no rules, there's nothing, just don't even worry about it. It's, it's just grace, 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 grace. It doesn't matter how you live. You can do what you want. God understands. What do we do with this thing we call sin? Sure, Glenn, I'm in the light. Thank God the light of the world is not a shaming light, but a saving light. Great, great, great. But, but you see, between last Sunday and this Sunday, I lost my temper. I, I got irritated. I, I looked at something on the internet. What, you might have all these little things that you're saying, Glenn, I did this. Glenn, I did this. What, what, what do I do with this thing called sin? If you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, we'll start with verse 3. John says, this is how we know that we know him. (laughs) If we keep his commandments, uh uh-oh. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who claims I know him while not keeping his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in this person. But the love of God is truly perfected in whoever keeps his word. This is how we know we are in him The one who claims to remain in him ought to live in the same way as he lived. Now, right away, all the legalism warnings are going off in your head. And some of you are like, I knew it. I knew it. I actually have to live as Jesus lived. I'm toast. And others of you are like, no way. This cannot be in the Bible. This what? No, 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 no. What do we do with this? What is John saying? Let's take this apart for a little bit. Last week I mentioned that some of the people that came from the Greek background had influences of what we call Gnosticism. Now I know that's kind of a, an unfamiliar word, but let's put it on the screen here. The Gnostics. What is it? What are some of the things that Gnostics believe? Well, for one, there was this dualism. There's this division between body and soul, the material world and the spiritual world. So this kind of um, influence of Gnosticism is a leftover from Plato. If some of you are into philosophy and you know that, where, where, where there's this deeply embedded Greek way way of seeing the world that said, hey, listen, this material world is really not the real thing. It's just a shadow of the real. And really what we're after is something that the mind can comprehend. It's something that the the spiritual or the soul, the thing that is invisible, that's the thing that is real. Now, the reason this is tricky is is because many of you as Christians have been raised to think this way. To think that spiritual things means immaterial things, non-material things. But actually, that's not what Christians believe. Remember, John is the one who says, the word became flesh. 
That actually as Christians, we don't see this, tr- this huge duality between the physical and the spiritual. We're the people that say, God made this world and called it good. God breathed his spirit into humans and gave us his image. And yes, there's sin, and we're going to talk about that later today. But this world itself is a world that the creator God intends to redeem. So we're not dualists, but this Greek Gnostic thought was seeping in. But the second part of it was that Gnostics believed that salvation came through a secret knowledge, gnosis, this idea of knowledge that comes through a secret way. Now pay attention now to those verses we just read, where John says, okay, this is how we know that we know him. You obey his commandments. What's John saying? It's not secret knowledge that saves you. It's actually a changed life that is the result of God's work. And so all of a sudden, John's saying, okay, guys, listen, it's not just like, okay, did you know the little secret? Did you hear? I am a special enlightened teacher. And there were these, likely these people that were going around saying, I am the special enlightened teacher, and I've got secret knowledge. And once I give you secret knowledge, you'll have secret knowledge, and then you're fine. And John says, actually, knowledge of the Father is meant to lead to obedience to the Father. Knowledge of the Father is meant to lead to obedience to the Father. That the gospel is not some kind of secret knowledge, but rather it is a transforming knowledge. Now this is challenging when we first hear it. It's challenging because we realize how tempting it is to be kind of like those Gnostics in the first century. So, well, I, I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. I checked the box. I came to the altar call. I can, I can confess all the right doctrinal statements. I have secret saving knowledge. But has it worked its way in you to produce obedience? Oh, I don't know about that. I just, but I know. And think about how so much of our Western discipleship is based on helping people acquire the right knowledge. You've got to learn this. You've got to learn this. You've got to learn. No doubt. I'm a learner. I love knowledge. But John's saying there's something more to this Christian life than just knowing it. Supposed to lead to obedience. Then he goes on, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old one, an old commandment that you heard from the beginning. And the old commandment is the message you heard. And then he says, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. Like, oh gosh, John, I'm so confused. Which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light already shines. What happens in your mind? What do you think of when I say the word commandment? Rules. Regulations. Speed limits. Speeding tickets. (laughs) Word association game, your mind keeps going, right? Commandments. And some of you, you know, it's like conforming is... You're naturally the you know, firstborn, whatever. You, know, you just follow everything. Others of you are like, I don't know, I was the youngest in my family. The rules don't really apply. <laughs> I hear commandments and I think suggestions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is this word? I think to ears that were, were well used to hearing Deuteronomy, commandments would have made them remember the Torah. But one of the great misleading things we've done is to translate Torah as law. 
And Torah refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, right? But Torah doesn't mean law. It means teaching, instruction. Now, that has a different shade of meaning, doesn't it? Because when you think rules, you're like, but when you think teaching or instructions, all of a sudden Yahweh, the covenant God, is more like a parent trying to teach and instruct their children along the way. Trying to say, okay, listen here, I'm going to save you from a world that doesn't understand um, the value of life. And I'm going to start by saying, don't murder your brother. Eventually, Jesus, the word become flesh, will say, actually, don't even hate your brother. There is a sense in which the teaching that began in the Old Testament comes to its culmination in Jesus. But commandments are meant to bring us life. Commandments are meant to bring us life. Actually, the psalmist got this. If you read Psalm 119, one of the greatest songs that reflect on the commandments, the psalmist over and over again says, your word, it's, it's a lamp to my feet, it's a light to my path. In other words, it's the thing that guides me and shows me. I, I run freely in the path of your commands, the psalmist says. Now think about what an oxymoron that, I run freely in the path of your commands. That doesn't even make any sense, but it does. It does. There's something about a strength that when it's put in a certain trajectory, I mean, think about a thoroughbred horse, and you say, here's all this strength in it, and we put this bridle on it to help it run fast this way, not in circles aimlessly. The psalmists are beginning, the commandments are given to us for life. Now, all of this is still preamble to our main section of the text, but it's important to say it because... If we're going to properly wrestle with sin and commandments, we really need to reframe how we think about it. Because for many of us, especially in this, in, in this day, we tend to think that Christian morality, for example, is just old-fashioned. Christian morality doesn't understand the world. Christian morality doesn't really understand how humans are made. If you begin with the premise that Christian rules are just arbitrary rules, then you're free to dismiss them as you please. You're free to reinterpret them and say, well, I mean, yeah, that's sort of a, just, just a leftover from the Victorian era, and some of them are, that's true. Some things passed off as Christian morality. Anyway, that's a whole other sermon. But is there something at the heart of this where we say, you know what, I think God's commandments are actually meant to lead to human flourishing. Is this really how life happens at its best? It's interesting, you know, because a number of us as pastors at the church speak with young people, and you can imagine the the most cumbersome bit about Christian morality is that whole bit about sex and marriage, because aren't we all, haven't we all grown up past that? I mean, don't we understand? And it's like, as long as we love one another and vaguely promise our love to one another, sex is just an expression of that, right? Sexuality, being sexual, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just a way to show love, right? I was joking the other day, we were at a wedding and the song was, the Bruno Mars song was playing, you know, I think I want to marry you. And I, was, I pointed out to someone, I said, 
It's interesting that the phrase is, I think I want to marry you. It's like, how... <laughs> it's like the highest promise of commitment and then the most casual, suggestive phrase. <laughs> Do you or don't you? <laughs> I think I want to marry you. Do you? Maybe if I have sex with you, then you will want to marry me. And on and on the thinking goes. Do God's commandments actually lead to human flourishing? Do we believe at the heart of it that commitment is meant to lead the way for intimacy? Because intimacy without commitment is vulnerable. That letting intimacy go ahead, run ahead of commitment is a great way to make yourself vulnerable. But that letting commitment lead intimacy might just be a brilliant way to protect us. I don't know. What we think about the commandments matter greatly. Are these outmoded old-fashioned rules or are they God's words of life to say, live this way and you will truly live? Now we get to the heart of this. John, in his letter, will actually give two very big commandments. One is love one another. And he hints that at this chapter, but he's going to develop that in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So we'll leave it for those weeks. But this is the chapter where he gives his other commandment, this time in the negative, And he says, do not love the world. Now, I might be wrong, but I think this is the only time, the only time in all of Scripture that we are actually told not to love something. That there is a commandment about love and it is prohibitive. This is interesting because, especially in our day when we secularize love as a slogan. Love it all. Just love. All you need is love. We've been doing that since the Beatles. You know, this is, this is, it's been sloganized. It's worth remembering that actually the scriptures say there is one kind of love you're not supposed to have. There is one... Focus of your love that you're not supposed to have. Do not love. What? I thought Christians were all about love, 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 love. Here John says, there's one thing I need to say. Do not love the world. Verse 15, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Everything that is in the world, the craving for whatever the body feels, the craving for whatever the eyes see, and the arrogant pride in one's possessions is not of the Father, but is of the world. So it's worth asking, what is the world? What does John mean? And some of you that are running ahead of me, you're like, wait, John, you said this the same John that wrote the Gospels? Well, isn't doesn't the Gospel of John say, for God so loved the World? Huh, hello? Is he changing his mind? Don't love away. The trick is if you purely rely on semantic definitions, it's the same word, cosmos. God loved the cosmos, John 3.16. Do not love the cosmos, 1 John 2. Uh, <laughs> and you need more than dictionary definitions to get at this. And what you recognize is that John pretty consistently in his writings has a way of saying the world, and what he means is not the physical, material, cosmos world. What he means is the systems and the, the society that, that has structured itself. And maybe we can say it this way. The world is humankind organizing itself 
apart from and against God. Humankind organizing itself apart from and against God. I think we have a slide for it. Maybe I didn't make it. Let's see. Okay. Humankind organizing itself apart from and against God. There it is. This is what John means when he says, don't love the world. There's a system. There's a structure. There's a way. And then he goes on and he says, okay, well, that is what the world is. What does it mean to actually love the world? What does it mean to, to set our hearts toward those systems and structures of organizing itself apart from and against God? He spells it out. What does it mean to love the world? The craving for whatever the body feels. The craving for whatever the eyes see. Arrogant pride in one's possession. St. Augustine in his sermons on First John pointed out the striking parallel that these phrases have with Genesis. You know, there's lots of echoes of Genesis in John's writings, in the beginning, all of that, right? And Augustine says, hey, hey, there's a little parallel here. She saw the fruit, that it was pleasing to the eye and good for food, and that it would make them wise like God. And so she saw, she took, she owned for herself, and so did Adam. And John says, man, isn't that the, the picture <laughs> The microcosm of what loving the world is. is to want it, to see it, to take it, to own it. Augustine, in a lot of his writings, helped us realize that sin is not simply loving the wrong things, but loving the right things wrongly. So, well, hey, hey, man, isn't that a good thing? Isn't, isn't food good? Isn't pleasure right? Isn't... Sexuality, holy, yeah, yeah, no, it's all good. But that part of what sin is, it's not the bi- it's not Christians saying, ah, taboo, eek, gross. But it's Christians saying, those are right and good things. But you're desiring them wrongly. Your, dis- your desires are being disordered. Now, this is a profound way to think. Because for too long, Christians have sort of been kind of in the prohibitive. Well, just don't do that instead. That's gross. That's bad. That's evil. That's wicked. Is this what John is saying? Or is what John really up to is to show us that to love the world is to love things that are right and good and beautiful, but wrongly. And that by loving them wrongly, you're actually distorting it. By making sexual desire the driving desire you've actually distorted the beauty of what sexual desire is. Some time ago, the New Yorker had an article about the myth of porn, and it interviewed hundreds of college students on campuses. And One of the things she says is, she now says, I realize that for a young man, an actual live naked girl is just bad porn. You tell me if letting those desires lead the way has actually, in the end, destroyed the beauty and the gift of sex. John says, look, don't love the world, because when you do this, you're actually destroying something that could have been good. You're taking it and you're elevating it. You're letting it lead the way. You're letting it drive everything. And by doing that, you've made it turn in on itself, and you've destroyed it. This is why sin is not just desiring loving the wrong things. It's loving the right things wrongly. Verse 17, why do we not love the world? Why, why, why is John 
so strong about this. Why not love the world? Because the world and all its cravings, verse 17s, are passing away. But the person who does the will of God remains forever. The short answer for why do you not love the world is because it is the lesser thing. It's the, actually the lesser joy. Augustine said it this way. Any, any fans of poetry in the room? Shakespeare, King James, English, whatever. If you read these translations of Augustine's sermons are just so beautiful. They, they sound like poetry. And he's saying, he's answering the question. Someone, someone will say, what about the earth and the birds? And should we not love those things? And this is what he says. Let the Spirit of God be in thee that thou mayest see that all these things are good. But woe to thee if, they, if thou love the things made and forsake the maker of them. Fair are they to thee, but how much fairer he that formed them. Gosh, that's beautiful. Fair are they to thee. Yes, they are good and beautiful, but how much fairer he that formed them. Augustine realized, listen, there is a way of loving the world that actually makes you makes your love bounce upward and love the Lord. And there is a way to love the world that makes it an end in itself, and then by doing it, you've distorted it. Does that make sense? Augustine says, look, if you love the world as a way of loving, pointing your love back upward to the Father, that's it. And then he uses this this incredible illustration of a man giving a ring to a woman as a promise of their covenant. He says, no woman would love the ring more than the fiancé. Maybe some of you might, but I don't know. So I don't really love the man, but this ring is so awesome. And Augustine is saying, this world is our promise from our good father that everything good in it will be one day multiplied and, and made right. That ultimately this is just a promise of how good his goodness really is. And if you love the ring and miss the bridegroom... You've missed it. You're loving the lesser thing. Isn't that beautiful? This guy was preaching. C.S. Lewis, channeling his inner St. Augustine, said it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. So British. (laughs) And then here's the line. We are far too easily pleased. This is why John says, do not love the world. He's saying, look, all of that is good, but if you fill up with it as an end in itself, you are settling for the lesser joy. There is a greater joy. And that's why many commentators said, look, look how John's paralleling the world and the Father, the world and the Father, the Father who is the source of every good and perfect gift. And John's saying, this is great, but he's the source. Yes, there is joy here, but this is the fountain of all joy. The Father. Don't love the world. Ultimately, set your love on the Father above. Say, Glenn, that sounds beautiful, but I just don't know how I can do this. How is this possible? 
We're surrounded by temptations that do pull on the cravings of what the eyes see and the cravings of the flesh and the pride in one's possession. All around me, I'm bombarded by it. It's on ads, it's on commercials, it's, in mag- it's on the internet. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Go back with me to the first verse of John 2. First John 2. My little children, hear the tenderness in this elderly apostle's voice. My little children, I'm writing you these things to you so that you don't sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate. How is this possible? Because we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus. And that if you sin, when you sin, the Father isn't saying, I'm cutting you off from all the fountain of joy now. No soup for you. (laughs) The Father says, you have an advocate. It's Jesus. You can keep coming back to the source. How is this possible? Because we have an advocate. Jesus, after all, was tempted with these same three temptations, right? In the wilderness, these three temptations mirror the ones in Genesis. And John is echoing them back. Jesus, the one who overcame the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus, the one who endured all of these temptations and yet was without sin. Jesus is your advocate with the Father. You don't come to the Father every week or every day and say, Okay, God, well, I've had a pretty good week, so I think I can do the two-handed worship today. You know, bad week, one hand, you know, really bad week, head down. You know. what? No, you have an advocate with the Father. You can always come and say, Lord, I'm back. I'm here. I'm coming again. But secondly, we have an anointing in us. At the end of this chapter is our section of verses that have been greatly misquoted by a lot of charismatics that I know. You have an anointing in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you. I've had someone say, I don't need your sermons. I've got the anointing in me. Well, that's like not exactly what John was saying, but it, of course, if you don't want me to teach you, then I can't tell you that. But John, in his letter, is very much echoing the phrase that he says at the end of his Gospels, where Jesus says, Behold, the Spirit is coming, and he will guide you into all truth. And the flow of this letter is John saying, look, there are some that are antichrists. The only time that word is used in the New Testament, it's used in the plural kind of lowercase, not like the antichrist. No matter what Facebook tells you the antichrist is. John uses it as in there's a spirit where people who are opposing the identity of who Jesus is. And John says the people who deny Christ, that's the spirit against Christ. But you've got the spirit of the anointed one in you. Christ, the anointed one. And he says, it's in you. It bears witness to who Jesus really is. First John uses the word anointing the way Paul uses the word the Spirit. That's helpful. So when John says, you have an anointing, he's not talking about, oh, I need to come down front and someone needs to give me the anointing. John's saying, the Holy, sorry about that, Anthony, the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to who Jesus is, and actually in the very next chapter, John's about to say, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to who you really are, children of God. How can we live out this life? Because we have an advocate with the Father, but yes, 
we have an anointing, the Spirit of God Himself living in you. This is the difference. The people of Israel in the Old Testament, they had teaching and instruction. We as believers in Jesus, we have the Spirit. This is why the giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost is the exact same day feast-wise that the giving of the Torah was. Isn't that interesting? So in the Old Testament, the giving of the Torah is on this 50th day, Pentecost. And in the New Testament, God, you think on coincidence, God is the poor of the Spirit on this very same day. To say what? I'm not just going to give you instruction. I'm going to give you power. I'm not just going to give you teaching. I'm going to give you life. I'm not just going to give you truth. I'm going to give you myself. How is this life possible? Because we have an advocate with the Father and the Spirit of God, the anointing itself in us. What do we do with our sin? Keep bringing it before Jesus. What do we do with our sin? Keep inviting the Holy Spirit to change us, to make this obedience possible. So, I'm a long way away. I know. It's all right. There's not a deadline on this one. We're going to spend our whole life journeying this way. And along the way, we have an advocate and the anointing, the power of God himself. Amen? As you prepare your hearts this morning, I want to read to you one last quote from St. Augustine. Thou lovest the world, loveth not the world. When thou hast emptied thy heart of earthly love, thou shalt drink in love divine. Shut out the evil love of the world that thou mayest be filled with the love of God. And then here are these words that can call us to confession. Thou art a vessel, but as yet thou art full. Pour out what thou hast, that thou mayest receive what thou hast not. What's Augustine saying? Confession is emptying out the thing we've been filling up on. And saying there's a greater banquet. Look at this table here, church. This table is a great feast. The grace of God given for us. The body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ given for us. It echoes an even greater feast coming on the great last day. And think about how food, feasting, is the very undoing of how sin began. Sin began when man and woman said, there's a fruit that I need to take and eat for myself. I need it. And Jesus says, put the fruit down. Look at this feast. I've prepared for you. My body, my blood, given for you. Take, eat, take, drink. Amen?